0: Isn't it incredible how one phrase has the power to completely change your life? It's not hard to think of examples. Here are a couple from my own life. I do. (laughs) It's a girl. (laughs) When I was a little kid, there was a phrase that I heard every single year. That carried with it the the weight of a cosmic shift in our household. Once I heard this phrase, I knew that the season was changing, that my my parents were gonna be much happier, and that we'd spend more time cheering and rejoicing than we would any other time of the year. And here's the phrase It's football time in Tennessee! And even though I know that the only person in this parish who will understand that reference is Bob Withers, and regrettably he's not even here today, I can't emphasize enough the weight and the power of that phrase. And to this day, even though I haven't watched the Vols play in probably 20 years, when I hear that phrase, it it does something to me. Not only does it pack a nostalgic punch, but it makes me, who is very unlikely to be willing to watch any sporting event of any kind, Want to watch some football? And in our gospel reading for this morning, we hear a phrase that encapsulates the weight and the power of the whole gospel. A phrase that describes Jesus and what he does for God's people, as well as, if not better than, anything else in the New Testament. Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And it's especially appropriate to unpack this phrase during the season of Epiphany because this whole season hinges on the revelation that God has come to save the world, not just Israel, but the Gentiles too, the whole world through his son, Jesus Christ. So for the next few minutes, I want to focus our attention right there on that phrase, that one phrase in the second half of verse 29 of John chapter 1. So while you turn there, either in your Bibles or in your, in your bulletin, let me provide a little context for you. First of all, who's talking? <laughs> Who is uttering this phrase? Well, if you turn back to verse 19, you'll read, and this is the testimony of John. It's like we're in a courtroom, and the key witness has been called up, and we're, we're ready to hear his testimony. But the problem is that there are as many Johns in the New Testament as there are Marys. So it's worth asking, which John are we talking about? The testimony that we're reading is the testimony of John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, the son of Elizabeth and Zechariah. And we know from the other Gospels that, that John's kind of a wild man, right? He's a, a camel-skin-wearing, locust-and-honey-eating voice, crying out in the wilderness to prepare the way for the coming messiah so here's john and he's standing on the side of the road and he's watching as jesus approaches and john cries out this phrase behold the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world now as i said before the season of epiphany is a season of revelation of manifestation, of of unveiling, of seeing things which up until now have been hidden from human sight. So it's fitting that the first thing out of John's mouth is an imperative, it's an order. Behold! Look! Pay attention, turn your head, quit looking down at your phone, stop reading your paper, look at who is coming. One of the most famous images of John the Baptist appears on the Isenheim altarpiece, an incredible work of art that's been referred to as German Arts Sistine Chapel. And in the central panel of this triptych, we see Jesus hanging on the cross. And he's surrounded by a few key figures from his life, his mother, Mary, John, his beloved disciple. And weirdly enough, standing to his right is John the Baptist standing next to a lamb. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But it's weird that John the Baptist is there, because by the time Jesus has been crucified, John the Baptist has already been beheaded. He's long dead. He's not there at the scene of Jesus' death and resurrection. But there he is in the Isenheim altarpiece, standing to the right of his crucified Lord. And if you stand back as the viewer and just look at the image, the thing that your eye is immediately drawn to is John's pointer finger. The artist, Grunewald, made John's pointer finger grotesquely long as it points and gestures toward Jesus. In this painting, the unspeaking John appears to be saying, Behold! Behold! But what or who are we beholding? It's okay, everyone. That's my goddaughter. (laughs) She really loves my preaching. (laughs) But what or who are we beholding? What is John having us look at? Well, look back at John 1.29. Behold, the Lamb of God. This occurrence and the second occurrence of this phrase in, chapter, in verse 36 of the same passage are the only times this name for Jesus is used in the entire New Testament. And yet, as I've already said, this phrase packs a punch. It says something about Jesus that no other name quite says. I read a story this week of a priest who asked one of his parishioners, who was an adult, mature believer, why he thought that John called Jesus a lamb. And the parishioner replied, it's because Jesus is gentle and nice. (laughs) That person was thinking of the Lamb of God as a porcelain precious moments figurine. But that's not what Jesus had, I'm sorry, it's not what John had in mind when he referred to Jesus as the Lamb of God. And so our Old Testament reading that we read just a couple minutes ago, it gets us part of the way there in understanding this phrase, the Lamb of God. Just a moment ago, we read the story of the Passover, a scene from Israel's history where God orders the Israelites to slaughter a lamb and to cover their doorposts with the lamb's blood. And this would cause the angel of death, or the destroyer, to pass over their homes as it spread the tenth and final plague throughout Egypt, the horrific plague that would result in the deaths of the firstborn sons of all the Egyptians. And it's after this plague that Pharaoh finally decides that he's had about enough with Moses and the Israelites. And so at last, he commands them to get out of Egypt, to take their plagues with them. And so the Passover lamb represents for Israel deliverance and rescue. It represents the end of slavery and captivity. And year over year, the Passover was remembered and marked, and Israel provided its own lambs to slaughter in remembrance of what God had done. But God's people had to effectually provide their own sacrifice to recall the Passover. But here comes John the Baptist, the guy who's usually depicted standing next to a lamb, and he's saying, Behold, look at Jesus! This is God's lamb. The responsibility is off of your shoulders. He is the Passover lamb. He is the one who will be sacrificed to rescue and deliver God's people. The Passover lamb rescued Israelites from the plague of death. And now Jesus Christ, the lamb of God, will face down death on the cross. And destroy and overcome death in the grave forever, so that we might have life with God. In our Eucharistic liturgy, we declare this fact alongside John the Baptist every week Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. We might go so far as to say, Christ, our Passover lamb, is sacrificed for us. And how do we respond? Go ahead, Carolee. (laughs) Therefore, let us keep the feast. Therefore, let us keep the feast. These are words of victory and triumph. Our great high priest, Jesus Christ, is also our Passover lamb. Cyril of Alexandria wrote, For one lamb died for all, saving the whole flock on earth to God the Father, one for all, that he might subject all to God. This is no gentle, passive, precious moments lamb. This is the same Lord who alone can deliver us from the bondage of death. This is the same Lord who declares his authority over his own life and death later on in John's gospel, saying, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. But as I said earlier, Jesus as the Passover lamb only gets us part of the way there. It only partially describes this title that John has given to Jesus. And that's because the Passover lamb is not sacrificed for the removal of sin. The lamb of God is only the first part of John's earth-shattering phrase. John the Baptist declares, behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. This phrase combines the power of the Passover lamb with another Old Testament lamb, the one described in Leviticus 16, the day of atonement. God instructs the priest, then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all of their sins. Now the Hebrew word used here, which is sometimes translated as goat, can also be translated as lamb because it's one word that describes all the cloven-hooved critters walking around. What's important to recognize here is that sinful people with all their uncleanness and all their transgression cannot approach a holy God. Their sin has to be atoned for through a sacrifice. And so the blood of this lamb covered over the sins of God's people, enabling them and allowing them to enter once again into God's presence. And now we have Jesus, the Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world. And in a breathtaking moment, we recognize that Jesus has come not only to redeem and rescue God's people, but Jesus has come to redeem and save The world and moreover he hasn't come to temporarily atone for their sins like the lamb who was slain on the day of atonement he hasn't just come for the sake of forgiveness Jesus has come to take away to remove to cast off the sin of the world the day of atonement is no more the annual sacrifice to atone for Israel's sin is no longer necessary because God has now sent his own lamb to take away the world's sin once for all. And this fact distinguishes Christianity from all other religions. In every other religion, the deity needs to be placated in some way. right? His, his wrath needs to be assuaged in some form or fashion. And so it's up to you, right, to to either follow the law or figure out a way to placate and assuage that God. Imagine for just a second the weight of that expectation, the weight of that burden. And here, John the Baptist is saying as clearly as he possibly can, you are not responsible for placating God. You are not responsible for or even capable of providing the sacrificial lamb. God has provided his own lamb, his son, our savior, Jesus Christ. And that lamb has taken away the sin of the world. And I can't state this strongly enough or clearly enough. So if you fell asleep while I was talking about the Old Testament, now Now's the moment to come back online. The Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world, and that includes your sins. The Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world, and that includes your particular sins. If you have trusted Jesus, your sins have been taken away in the eyes of God. When Charles and I were newly dating, he said something to me that I've never been able to forget. One night I confessed to him that I had a hard time believing that I really was right with God, that God wasn't holding my wrongs against me, that he didn't look at me with anger or maybe even disgust. And Charles responded, You know, Bree... (laughs) Sometimes you're really arrogant in your humility. (laughs) And once I got over the urge to smack him, I recognized what he was saying. I was arrogant enough to believe that I was the one human being on earth who was truly irredeemable. The one human being on earth who could not be saved. And yeah, there is some humility in that. But there's also a great deal of arrogance. Because underneath that thin veil of humility, what I really wanted was to be in control. What I really wanted was to be certain that if I tried hard enough, I could be a good enough person that it would shield me from God's judgment. But the reality is that I can never be a good enough person to earn my own salvation. What I need is God's lamb. God's lamb who doesn't want my control or my earning or my striving to set me to rights with God. What I need is the recognition that the weight of my sin pales in comparison to the power of Jesus. So many of us are walking around with our, our shoulders bowed under the weight of the things that we've done. And let's, let's be honest, we, we've done some awful things. I've done some awful things. But friends, just allow me to do what John the Baptist did. Allow me to extend my pointer finger in the only direction that it can go. Jesus laid down his life, not as a mindless or passive victim, but with the power and the authority given to him on heaven and on earth to remove that burden from your shoulders, to deliver you from the bondage of your sin, and to stand you up, to present you as righteous in the presence of God. And in the light of that epiphany, under the power of that phrase, you can now do what John the Baptist instructed and just behold. Behold the Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.